If you're making a half a million or a million or five million or ten million dollars in America, you probably can't Google and follow the advice of those kind of, you know, people. For high earners who want to leave a long-term legacy, overfunded whole life insurance done properly can be a wise investment, despite what you've read on Google. All of a sudden you'll be really confused because it's like, wait, I thought everybody hated whole life. And then you get up to the top of the pyramid or the end of the bell curve and you're like, wait a second, everybody loves permanent life insurance. What is going on? You're listening to Personal Injury Mastermind, where we give you the tools you need to take your personal injury practice to the next level. For those in the top tax brackets, Permanent life insurance is an important piece of an overall wealth creation strategy, but overfunded whole life insurance often gets a bad rap. To help clear things up, we have a great guest, Mark Cool. He specializes in helping personal injury attorneys set up overfunded whole life insurance policies and infinite banking for litigating firms. Mark is one of those few people who truly knew what he wanted to do as a teenager. At age 19, he began as an intern at Northwestern Mutual. Out of 1,700 interns, Mark ranked second in the country. Nearly two decades later, he has been featured in Forbes, Topps Magazine, and Business First, among many others. And his business spans across the country. I'm your host, Chris Dreyer, founder and CEO of Rankings.io. We help elite personal injury attorneys dominate first page rankings with search engine optimization. Before we begin, please know that this conversation is not intended to be recommendations for specific investment behavior, and it's intended for informational and educational purposes only. This is not a research report or investment advice, and not to be relied upon for a basis of investment decisions. Investors are advised that past investment performance is not guaranteed for future price performance. Before making any investment, you should carefully seek independent legal tax and regulatory advice. All right, let's start the show. Being at the forefront of marketing is all about understanding people. So let's get to know our guests. Here's Mark Cool, founder of Capitalist Planning Partners at Northwestern Mutual, on how a teen became enamored with finance. I love this industry. Somewhere around my junior year of high school, uh, through junior achievement, whenever they would bring business people in from the community to teach, Uh, We played the stock market game, and the stock market game gave you hypothetical money to try to build a portfolio. And I'd always been extroverted. People had always told me, hey, I think you'd do, you know, great in sales. And then the combination of really enjoying the pursuit of, you know, making money coupled with the human contact element of financial planning. So as sure as someone can be as a junior in high school, I thought, yeah, I want to I want to be a financial planner. And so it's funny, if you want to be a police officer or a firefighter or a doctor in high school and you tell people they don't question it, but when you when you tell them that, they they say, well, that's a great career. Keep your options open. And then I got to college and it's like my rendition of keep your options open was go to business school, go to a career advisor named Allie Goatley and be like, hey, are there internships in financial planning? And uh, so I showed up, almost finished with my freshman year of college at Northwestern Mutual in Louisville, Kentucky. And they said, yeah, we have this longstanding internship. We'll actually get you licensed. You'll have to do all of your meetings like with a mentor because who's going to listen to a 19, 20, or 21-year-old? However, if you originate business, you will you know, split the revenue from that with them. 
And uh, I was like a one interview close. I said, is there any limit to the amount of business you're allowed to originate? And they were like, no. And I said, yeah, I think I'd like to do this. And so that was um, in May of 2003. And here we sit in May of 2022. And uh, 19 years later, I keep showing up. Nobody's fired me. So I keep showing up. (laughs) Well, you come highly, highly recommended. A large percentage of our audience is personal injury attorneys. And I think what you do has some very valuable impact. How did you end up working with so many personal injury attorneys? Well, it's very interesting because when you first get into this business, they pretty much tell you like, hey, your income will mirror the people that you're calling on. And so I initially started with big firm attorneys, think like super regional attorneys, which back when I started in this business, they were making between 95 and 105,000, which when you take a job making zero, sounds like all the money in the world. So I did what everybody did. I'd find my way in with one. I'd, I'd print off a feed list of a whole bunch of people that were also associates and be like, hey, who else do you think I should be talking to? And we retain a lot of those clients today, but what I realized about those folks is I was essentially working on a contingency basis. They were working on an hourly basis. And so I wasn't charging by the hour back then for my time. And so I might have three or four meetings with them, Chris. And in the end, they're like, no, you know, I think I'm just going to kind of stay the course with what I'm doing. And um, I met a personal injury attorney who's now, quite frankly, no exaggeration, like nationally famous. He was involved in the Breonna Taylor case. And when I first met him, he was a solo guy. He comes into our office and says, if this phone rings, I'm going to have to pick it up. And I just watched how hard he worked and realized that he never wanted to waste my time or vice versa because we were only going to get paid if the client got the outcome that they liked. And so he was in my age range and kind of the godfather of the young folks uh, that were in the plaintiff's bar. And so I just started bouncing around on a friend-to-friend-to-friend basis. And then I started encouraging a whole bunch of people to leave their super regional jobs and start their own firm. And so it's kind of weird. We have a bunch of blue-collar business owners as clients. We have a bunch of uh, medical salespeople, whether it's device or durable equipments. And then we, we have a ton of members of the plaintiff's bar. And I think the fact that they work on contingency, so they don't want to waste your time or their time. And number two, that they have variable cash flow, no different than the business I run. And number three, that most of them or a large percentage of them are either small businesses or maybe partners in a larger practice, but they understand what it's like to meet payroll, to have to pay for everyone's laptop, to have to provide benefits. Those were all the things, you know, I was thinking about. So I've probably been to more justice associations and those type of meetings as a non-attorney than just about uh, anybody you'd ever meet. Well, that's incredible. And, you know, the, the first thing that I think of when I, when I hear insurance is I, I think I have the, the standard reaction a lot of people do. I, I think of, you know, everyone's been invited to that breakfast, you know, oh, with yeah. the Northwestern Mutual push and term mm-hmm. or whole life. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, and I've got the bad pitch. Right. Because if they would have gave me the good pitch, I would have understood the value. And so I want to jump right in there. And so I just want to get some basic terminology down. So first, what is this concept of infinite banking or being your own bank? Mm -hmm. And I think that infinite banking is a concept has been around Man, probably for 50 plus years at this point, plenty of people have written books on it. And infinite banking in and of itself is just that. It's a concept. There's no actual product per se that necessarily is an infinite banking life insurance policy. 
The concept of infinite banking is, at its core, there's two types of insurance. There's term life insurance where you buy protection for a given period of time. And if you pass while you're in that time, your family receives the death benefit proceeds tax-free. And if you outlive it, you had the protection, but it's a sunk cost at that point. And then there's permanent insurance. Permanent insurance can come as whole life or cash value insurance, as universal life, as variable universal life is index universal life. But infinite banking is this concept of, hey, while I'm alive, I have a permanent death benefit that never goes away, while simultaneously building an accumulated or cash value that I can use on a tax-favorable basis during my lifetime. So the concept is, hey, look, if I can build assets inside of an insurance policy that are treated tax-favorably, and they can grow faster or at a higher rate than what they might grow in a deposit account. And I can use that money pre-59 and a half because it's not qualified dollars like an IRA, 401k, SEP IRA, Roth IRA, et cetera. Then I could essentially, quote, turn myself into my own bank. I could have money in the policy. And when I needed it for any reason, I could take it out. And when I pay that money back into the policy or replenish it, most of the interest I'm paying is actually going back in to the accumulated or cash value. So the concept's probably five decades old, but it remains you know, grounded in the fact that you're using a product that can over time when properly structured with the right company, get you a better rate of return than you might on your own cash and also has some incredible flexibility in how you access the living benefits of the policy. There's so much here and we're going to have to dig into this because the first thing is we have to talk about like the arbitrage, you know, the, mm-hmm. the advantages of that, of, of what you're borrowing against and how it continues to grow. And, and I know we'll go down that rabbit hole a little bit and how you can utilize those funds and borrow against it. So, mm-hmm. but, but let's talk specifically personal injury attorneys. You know, how have you seen people manage litigation practice historically mm-hmm. and how could this be utilized from a cash flow perspective for these personal injury attorneys. That's the deal right there is that in my opinion, what I've seen far too often is that folks are, are solo practitioners or set up their own firm. So they're not super benefit heavy, like whenever they were in-house or of counsel somewhere or an associate or a partner in a big firm. And so a lot of times they don't have 401ks because what they're telling me is like, hey, look, my best and highest use of a dollar is putting it back into a case. There's no rate of return in the known universe on any individual equity, insurance policy, et cetera, that's going to get me the rate of return I can get if I get a successful verdict for my client. And I agree with all of that. However, and it's a big however, that normally means that they just hold on to gobs and gobs of cash. Well, the problem is you don't always need the gobs and gobs of cash. You need the gobs and gobs of cash on the right cases for all the expenses we all know are associated with the right cases. So my view has always been, hey, look, what if we keep enough cash in cash right now? Because it does take time for these policies to build where it makes more sense to be using the policy than it does your own cash. But if somebody's got a lot of cash and I say, hey, what's an expensive trial? Well, let's keep that cash on the sidelines and then let's take that other cash and new cash that comes in and, you know, start building this war chest for you. And then ultimately, once the war chest inside of the policy gets big enough that you feel comfortable that you could try a really big case with it, then maybe you still keep the operational cash just for salaries and stuff and and or you can continue to put it in the policy. So in the past, I've just seen it as like, hey, I know I should be doing something other than have it in cash. 
but I need it to be really liquid. But I hate the fact that I don't get any return on it. And the one thing, Chris, most people don't know is you pay ordinary income tax on the interest earned in a deposit account. The problem is we've just gotten such little return on deposit accounts in the current interest rate environment that most people don't realize they're paying interest. Because even right now, if you've got a half a million dollars or more on deposit with the exclusion of some online banks, you know, you're you're still in the, you know, 50 basis points to if you got a really great banking relationship, maybe a hundred basis points or 1%. And so that's how I've seen it in the past. I can't get rid of it because I need liquidity, but I hate the fact I'm not getting any return. And if I do get return, I have to pay ordinary income tax. And if I'm holding that much cash, I'm normally making good money in a high marginal rate. So we're just trying to say, hey, look, let's carve out what we know we need to have if that case falls in our lap tomorrow, and let's start building a better long-term strategy because unless you think you're getting out of this business in the next two to five years, that'll give you enough runway time to be able to do both. Yeah, and first, you don't pay taxes on debt. That's the first one, borrowing against the policy. The second thing is it continues to grow. It's not gone. So like if you compare your options, and I'm not an attorney, so I don't know all the options that many of you listening do, but very common one that I've heard is they'll go borrow against the line of credit. Mm -hmm. Well, the line of credit's not creating value and growing over time. It works from that cash flow perspective, right? Your your case settles, you'll pay back the, you know, all your expert witnesses and all the costs you accumulate during the trial, you go pay that back after it settles the line of credit, but doesn't continue to grow. You might be able to borrow more because of reliability, but is that what I'm hearing when you compare these types of options? Yeah. And the thing to remember from a tax perspective is permanent life insurance is powerful because you get to take out basis first. So if over the course of 10 years, you've been dollar cost averaging 50 grand a year in, and you've got 500,000 of basis and through interest, maybe now you're at 650,000 of accumulated value. Most companies will allow you to borrow 95% of that value out of the policy. You're using your policy as collateral with the issuing company, right? However, while the money's out, you still have the permanent death benefit, less whatever you borrowed. So if this was a $2 million policy and you took out a half a million, you passed the next day, your family would still get the million and a half dollars. Number two, you still continue to get dividends if it is a participating policy. And if you're going to look down this, quote, concept, because, again, it's not a product of infinite banking, you're really only going to want to buy a policy from a participating company that pays dividends. And when you pay policies back or replenish them, a vast majority of the, quote, interest that's being charged, because it is interest, if you don't pay it back, it will continue to accumulate But so much of that goes back into your policy. So you do have your cash value continuing to grow and the policy is getting dividends and you are getting a big chunk of the interest. So the net borrowing cost is pretty slim compared to traditional vehicles. But again, I would say two things. Number one, it does take some time to build up because even when these are structured properly, Chris, it's like, you know, you might have a seven to eight year break even point where it's like, okay, I've put in 350. It's finally worth 350. Man, Mark, you're really good at your job. It took you seven years to break even, but then kind of the hockey stick takes off. And so it might've taken you seven years to break even. And then all of a sudden in this example, you look up in seven more years and you've got 700,000 a basis, but now it's worth a million one. And you're like, oh, I get it. 
And uh, even if you retire someday, if you if you started the concept later in life and you retire, we would believe that you're going to have some amount of, quote, safe dollars on your balance sheet. And because insurance is funded on an after-tax basis, so it's not tax deductible, and because it grows you know, tax deferred and because it can be accessed basis first, which is so powerful, if you're going to have some safe dollars on your balance sheet, we would argue that even once you get out of the practice of law, these are better safe dollars than a lot of like alternatives like deposit accounts, like corporate and municipal bonds. So you could think of it like a Swiss army knife. There are a lot of uses. The most important use, in my opinion, that most clients see in their later years is permanent death benefit. They might say, hey, I did this as a better way to finance my own cases. I did this as a way to give me a much higher ability to contribute than a 401k or IRA would, all these things. And then a lot of times they have their first grandchild and all they care about is, now is all this death benefit going to be there and tax-free someday, you know, when I'm gone? So it is a, um, if you give it enough time, buy it from the right company, properly structured, properly funded, it, it can just be an incredible tool in your toolkit. I couldn't agree more. And I kind of, I'm mad, angry at myself, right? So I've had term for a while and I know, uh, you know, your standard whole life insurance, you know, when I got married and, and I have a kid and it's like, man, if I would have done whole life and specifically overfunded, mm-hmm. I could have had that same security. But then during that time period of accumulation, I could have utilized it for my real estate investments that are going to appreciate and grow at a larger, you know, that there's that arbitrage of my borrowing rate versus the arbitrage of my growth of my real estate. And and now seeing what inflation's doing, it's it's just, so I see a ton of advantages and and how those funds could be utilized. But I, I kind of want to take it back a little bit. I want to take it back. So let's just do some basics here. What we're talking about, what's the difference between standard and overfunded? So when you buy life insurance, just like anything else, think about, quote, overfunding or what we call additional premiums to be like a principal-only style payment on a mortgage. So when you buy a 30-year mortgage, you know exactly how much you need to pay each month if you wanted to pay it up in 30 years. Well, you can obviously use a mortgage calculator and say, hey, what if I wanted to pay it off in 20 years? How much extra money would I need to include each month or each year to make that happen or 10 years, five years, whatever your duration is? Well, when you buy a permanent insurance policy, it's you know based on your age, your health, your gender. And so they may say, hey, Chris, a million dollars of insurance for you, the permanent kind costs $12,000 a year. That's a totally made up number that's easily divisible by 12 months, but it costs 12000 a year. Well, there is something known as an MEC or the Modified Endowment Contract Limit, and that's the limit that the IRS sets on how much a certain amount of death benefit at a given age, health, and gender can fit to where it still passes the test of life insurance and has a lot of the attractive tax features that life insurance can offer. So I might come back to you, Chris, and say, hey, Chris, at at 12,000, this is what it does long term. It doesn't look super sexy from a return perspective, but you have permanent death benefit, which is the main reason you're going to buy this contract, and you will feel better than just throwing away your money on term. However, the other bookend in this example, Chris, is the fact that you could put up to $60,000 a year or $48,000 extra in this example in the policy. And that tier of, quote, overfunding or additional premiums with most companies is paid out at a super, 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 super low commission rate to the agent. And typically, there's not a lot of reserving requirements for the death benefit. 
said differently, you know, the first 12 that you put in at the end of the first year in traditional whole life, you might have three to show for it. Of that 48 that you put in and overfunding, you might have 45 of it to show for it. And so you can walk up to that modified endowment contract line and you can fund these in seven years. That's about the fastest you could. Or you could look at me and say, hey, Mark, I'm 42 today. I want to retire at 62. I want to know for this given death benefit what the maximum amount of money is I can put over 20 years. And so to tie a bow on it, just think about it like a principal-only payment. When you make a principal-only payment on a mortgage, you save interest. When you put in additional premiums or overfund a policy, you speed up how quickly you earn interest. Yeah, so that's the key thing. And I know we're going to talk about like what to look for and how to structure this and how to hire to get this set up. Because even if you chose whole life, if you're not doing the overfunding, it may not have those borrowing capacities, depending upon your, your policy limit that you're looking for. So you really got to structure it the right way. The other thing, at least from what I'm hearing, when you get on the internet and you talk to everyone, and it's like, oh, every article's why you shouldn't buy permanent whole life, right? I used to joke, all I have to do is meet you and hope that you never Google anything for the first 13 months you have the policy. Right, right. There's so much in it. You got the Dave Ramsey people that are, you know, against Mm -hmm. the the permanent whole life. And there's just a lot of bad information. So, Mm -hmm. you know, why is that? And then, oh, I, yeah, I, I definitely yeah. know the answer. So the, the why is that is this. There's about 1,200, I think, companies left, and I may be off on that, but it's, it's a lot that still sell some form of a permanent style product, be it whole life, universal life, variable universal life, index universal life. Of that, there's probably no more than seven, and if I'm being brutally honest, no more than about three that I would actually use for a client. Now, this is, you know, largely personal opinion, but I think I could back it up with the underlying financials of the companies that I feel comfortable with. So even if we just assume that out of, let's say there's only a thousand instead of 1200, and let's say there's 10 that are good, you know, and instead of the seven or honestly three that I feel confident in, by definition, most of the articles you read are in fact correct. If you buy a product from the vast majority of other people, I think you're going to run into a problem because a lot of insurance companies now are stock-owned insurance companies versus the mutual insurance companies. So in a stock-owned company, whenever I put money in the policy, the policy or the company makes a profit, they have to decide how much of that profit is going to be paid to shareholders and how much of that profit is going to go back in the form of dividends to drive cash value. And so it's really hard you know, in this scenario to serve two gods. If you're a publicly traded corporation, by definition, you should be trying to increase shareholder value. So if you have a profit at the end of the year, and by the way, you're an executive who gets or board that gets to make this call and has a lot of equity comp, you may be inclined to, you know, put a lot of money towards shareholder dividends versus policyholder dividends. So with mutual companies, when they turn a profit, they can only really do two things with it. They can either retain it to strengthen surplus, which is their claims paying ability, regardless of the economic environment they find themselves in, or number two, they can pay it out in the form of dividends. So I think the reason there's so many bad articles is because quite frankly, by definition, there's not as many mutual companies left. So I think they're correct in that. And I joke, but it's a little bit like eggs. During, I'm 39 years old. During my life, 
I know that it's flipped at least four or five times that eggs are either going to kill us or it's the healthiest foods you could ever eat. (laughs) And I also would encourage the listeners, unless you're just in the startup phase of this, if you really step back and listen to a lot of the people who call into like a Dave Ramsey or Susie Orman, many of our listeners are making more money if they were to average a year and a month than a lot of these people state. That doesn't make the callers bad people. But I always tell our clients like, hey, if nobody's told you this, you're not normal. But I mean that in a good way. You know, if you're making a half a million or a million or five million or ten million dollars in America, you probably can't Google and follow the advice of those kind of people. And I think that the higher you go up in the tax bracket range and the higher you go up in the balance sheet range and the higher you go up in the CPA and estate planning world, all of a sudden you'll be really confused because it's like, wait, I thought everybody hated whole life. And then you get up to the top of the pyramid or the end of the bell curve and you're like, wait a second, everybody loves permanent life insurance. What is going on? And it it can be valuable for anyone because, you know, the main reason people buy it is if they want to leave a legacy long term. But unlocking some of the benefits that I think would most interest our listeners, that's typically going to come whenever you're sitting in a position to do some pretty neat things, you know, up to some IRS limits to really make it sing. There's so much I have to respond here. I would say I, I have more knowledge of this than I would say. The average, you know, from mm-hmm. our conversations and previous conversations with other individuals and masterminds like Taylor Welch and individuals like that, the nomenclature of dividend is what what I don't like. Where you've got the stock owned insurance companies and stocks pay dividends. I wish that the insurance owned when they're pay, they're distributing their money, it was called something different because I think that word dividends is automatically associated with stocks, but it's not a stock dividend. It, it's the it's the insurance company's dividend distribution. Uh, Correct. I mean, maybe there's some other individuals that are kind of struggling with that nomenclature, but you know, that's where it continues to grow and compound over time. Yeah. If you think about it, when you run an insurance company, all of us turn in our premiums and then the insurance company takes those premiums and they pay the operating expenses of the organization. So all the people in the home office, the executive team, et cetera, They pay the women or men who sold it, right? So they've got kind of like a cost of goods sold there. Then they pay out claims. And then what's remaining is essentially profit or net income. And over time, insurance companies build up large general accounts. So for instance, Northwestern Mutuals is $285 billion with a B. And when they pay a dividend, it's made up of three different components. Part of it is investment return of the general account. Part of it is how accurately did they rate mortality, meaning that if you're 5'8 and 253 pounds like me, maybe 5'9 on a good day in cowboy boots, you're probably going to pay more for insurance than my wife, who's 5'2 and suffice it to say, far, far better shape than me. So mortality is part of it. Like, did we accurately rate our risk? And then expense management is part of it. The beauty of it for a consumer, and I think we're going to talk about this on how to hire and what to look for. The beauty is all of that is published data. The expense ratio of every insurance company's published data. The mortality is published data. The investment return of their general account is. That's why I said earlier, there's only about if I'm being generous, seven, if I'm being realistic, three companies to do it with, because I can spreadsheet them or anyone, if you hire the right advisor, can spreadsheet them for you and say, hey, this company only takes 16 cents out of every dollar for expenses. 
they have very, very low mortality, meaning they were realistic about risk and their investment performance is high. Do you think that's better than these ones that are not doing as good in those categories? So dividends are simply all the premium in, less operating expenses, less people who pass away become disabled, et cetera. And then that profit goes into a general account. And then they have options on whether to retain some of that for surplus for future claims or to pay it back in in the dividend. And that dividend does two things. It grows your death benefit. So your policy is typically growing throughout the course of your life to the extent the company continues to pay a dividend. And it also powers your cash value. Now, if you throw some additional premiums or overfunding on top of that, that's where you can really unlock the magic and start to, quote, be your own bank. Again, for compliance sake, no real product, infinite banking product. And in fact, anyone on the internet who tells you they have a, quote, infinite banking product, they might have a slick website, but basically it's a nice wrapper for some form of permanent life insurance. When thinking about establishing a legacy, we can look back at some of America's wealthiest families and see how they use whole life insurance to maintain and grow their wealth. I think we all love two of the most famous companies that really, or three of the most famous companies that really got their jump off was Disneyland was largely constructed because of Walt Disney's cash value. You can Google that. There's a gazillion articles on it. JC Penney's was founded by using insurance an insurance policies, cash value as collateral. And so was Baskin Robbins. So, I mean, those are some, you know, iconic brands. The beauty of permanent life insurance or whole life insurance is you have a death benefit, you have an accumulated value. As long as you work with a good advisor and good company, that the policy will last until you cease to last. And you don't always have to put it into like an irrevocable life insurance trust right off the bat. The one place insurance can become taxable is, you know, right now, let's just call the exemption if you're married somewhere around $25 million. If you had a $25 million, or let's let's make this easy, a $22 million net worth and a $5 million policy not held in a trust, when you died, your $22 million plus five would tip you over the estate tax exemption and that could cause some problems. So when you're working with your advisor, they're going to want a thumbnail sketch of kind of what your net worth is to know whether or not the policy needs to be owned by a trust. For a lot of our clients, because the exemption is so high, they don't need it owned by a trust, which gives them far more flexibility to use some of the living benefits. But what you can do down the road, like once you retire and you may no longer need the living benefits as much, is that you can transfer it to an irrevocable life insurance trust. Now, you're going to want to meet with your estate planning attorney and CPA to understand that there are some clawbacks. So I can't find out that I have terminal cancer. I had ownership of the policy my whole life. And then I want to just throw it right in this trust to avoid you know, estate tax 90 days before I die. So there's a look back period on it. But yeah, I mean, for the longest time when the estate tax exemption went low, it was this easy. It was like your estate's worth 25 million, the exemption's 10 million, you got 15 million that's subject to 40% tax or $6 million. You can either do that in cash or for these dynasty type families, they had incredible balance sheets, but not a ton of liquidity. So it's like, you don't want to sell part of the farm. You don't want to sell the building your law firm's in. You don't want to sell the skyscraper in New York you own. So let's just use a financial calculator to find out 
what's the taxable equivalent yield you'd need to earn on the premiums to cover the $6 million estate tax? Well, what most people found is it was in the 10 to 15%, depending on how old they were and how healthy they were. And it's not hard, Chris, to look at somebody and go, hey, do you think in between now and a guaranteed event and death that you're going to magically find some place to put your money that's going to pay you 12.5%? And people would say no, and they would do that. But again, Back to the Swiss Army knife analogy, you can begin a policy held outside of a trust and then later put it in a trust. Again, you'll be subject to some look back period if you died unexpectedly and it tipped you over. But with the estate tax exemption as high as it is now, even successful people are not as worried about that as they once were. So, yeah, they were using it to start businesses. They were using it to pass generational wealth without having to sell illiquid assets. They were using it rather than you know, if you think about a bank, they're not bad, but they're reserve-based lenders. You give them a dollar, they can loan a multiple of the dollar that they have on deposit. They give you right now 0.25%. They loan it out to you at four and a half or 5%. And then the craziest part is they take a lot of the dollars you give them and they go buy a product called Bully or bank-owned life insurance. So it's like they give you a half a percent they charge you 5% for the money, and then they take your money and go drop it off at New York Life or Mass Mutual or Guardian or Northwestern Mutual and get 45 or 5%. You know, it's, it's arbitrage at the wildest you know, edges of arbitrage. And so it also goes back to the question you asked about. I read all these articles. I'm telling you right now, if you walk into just about any family office in America and say, hey, it's somewhere in this immense wealth that this family has done, have they found wildly creative uses – for whole life insurance or permanent life insurance, they're going to say yes, right? So we might not all be in family office territory yet, but if you want to get somewhere in life, sometimes you modeling the behavior of the people who are already there can be a sound strategy. I couldn't agree more. And, and I agree with the arbitrage and just, just leverage in general. So the bank wants you to invest your cash just so they can borrow more so that they can use use that leverage for arbitrage. And 100%. They're yeah. investing in insurance. That's the Dave Ramsey people just don't understand how leverage works. Um, you know, and in Dave's defense, about eight to nine of his like 10 hallmarks I tend to agree with. But in, in particular for his callers, I probably agree with all 10. Most of them need to get an emergency fund. They need to pay off non-asset-backed mm-hmm. debt that's extremely high interest and is eating their cash flow alive. And those kind of people do need to buy term life insurance because if they passed away yesterday, their spouse isn't going to say, hey, did we own permanent life insurance or term life insurance? They're just going to want the simple question right. answered of, am I going to be okay answered? And the best insurance is the insurance that's enforced when you die someday. And so for a lot of those people, it can be answered with term insurance. And, you know, I, I see the point to people who say, well, yeah, but I'm going to buy term and invest the difference. You know, if the term's two grand and the permanent's 12 grand, I'm going to take the 10 and I'm going to put it over here. I'm okay with that, except for most of the people I've met, Chris, they just enjoy the difference. You show up five years later and you're like, hey, man, your side fund at six and a half percent should be here. How much is in there? They're like, what side fund? So most of them enjoy the difference. In part two, they forget that every dollar can have a different duty. You should never buy insurance under the auspice that it's going to outperform some individual equity account because the standard deviation of risk on a mutual insurance company's general account is about like cash and T-bills. The standard deviation of a Roth IRA funded with individual equities is at the exact opposite end of the spectrum, and they're both good. 
that's where we get into trouble. I also think that's where a lot of articles are. If the only tool you have is a hammer, the whole world looks like a nail. So to the extent anyone's ever been in a bad Starbucks meeting, you know, getting their arm twisted over permanent life insurance or whole life insurance, we're at a point in our practice because we also manage a a ton of money for clients in addition to insurance that I'm kind of like, hey, look, I'm here telling you about a tool. If we take it through the right, if we ski through the right gates, it's probably going to be awesome for you. And if for any reason we miss a gate because of your available cash flow or your health issues or whatever, it's probably not a good tool. But for the right people in the right situation with the right company, with the right advisor structured correctly, we've got a lot of happy clients who are like, man, I'm really glad I did this. Yeah. And I, one of the things you said too, is like, Hey, if the, the term's low and I'm just going to invest the difference that, that immediately I got kind of sidetracked in my head. I was thinking, well, if I gave my wife a five grand budget, is she going to spend less on the, on the purse buy, you know, she's going to spend the full amount on the Louis Vuitton and there's right. not going to be anything left over. Sorry, Jenna, if you're listening, I love you. That's why I didn't say my wife's weight, but suffice it to say, it's not even half of mine for all the listening audience in case she ever gets a hold of this. <laughs> but, um, you know, the other thing, and, and I love the the protection aspect of the whole life. It makes me feel more secure and for my family and everything else is just the benefit, you know, the borrowing, the growing and compounding benefits. Have you seen any companies structure these overfunded whole life insurance policies on maybe the partner's? or the executives, you know, there's a lot of benefits, they, you know, um, ways to structure a benefit plan. It, have you seen? Oh, yeah, there is. A, from a, so um, I would tell you that non-qualified deferred compensation. So if you think about 401ks, simple IRAs, et cetera, those are all subject to ERISA reporting. On the exact opposite side of that coin is non-ERISA type arrangements, be it what's known as a bonus plan, a double bonus plan, a deferred compensation arrangement. Uh, We do a lot of work in the non-qualified deferred compensation space. So just imagine a universe for a second where you have some key people, and this could be partners, or this could even be like, hey, we've got case managers, and this guy or girl's been with us forever. They help us make a ton of money we're only doing a 3% match in the 401k. We want to do something special for them. You can set up a supplemental executive retirement plan. And just like there's bank-owned life insurance, there's also COLE or corporate-owned life insurance. So you can enter into what's known as a split dollar arrangement for a key person or executive where you say, hey, look, based on the profitability of the firm, we're going to put X in regardless. And then if we hit a certain profit margin, we're going to put in Y. If we hit another threshold, we're going to put in Z. And while you're alive, if something happens, part of this will be bonused out to your family is an executive benefit. So maybe it's a million dollar policy. And if something happens while you're alive and working here, $250,000 extra above the group term life will go to your family. The firm will retain the rest as key person insurance to you know, hopefully go out and hire someone else to do your role. However, when you get through the vesting schedule or retirement, the firm will then turn the policy over to you, which will be a taxable event to you, Mr. or Mrs. Executive, but you don't care because let's say you get a policy with 750 grand, they turn it over to you, you owe 250, you still got a half a million in this example in your policy. Mm -hmm. And then the firm gets a tax deduction when they turn it over. So if you're in a partnership arrangement with, say, two to 10 partners in a bigger shop, it can be a beautiful way for the firm to protect themselves from the death of a partner 
while simultaneously building everybody's balance sheet. And in particular for the younger partners, they're absolutely going to love it because when the old guy retires with the big policy, they weren't taking the tax deductions on the front end. But when it goes to the partner, they get this huge tax deduction as a firm. So we definitely do a lot of non-qualified deferred comp work and we even tier it. Sometimes there's an executive tier, there's a tier two, there's a tier three, but nobody doesn't like the idea of, hey, I get extra insurance while I'm working here for nothing. And if I help the firm stay profitable and ultimately meet the vesting schedule and retire here someday, I get a bunch of tax-free money on top of that. I think that's incredibly smart. I look at just the retirement options for, you know, and like how I can help my staff, my senior executive staff, and just all my staff in general. And, you know, the 3%, the the up to 5%, a lot of times it's just not going to be enough. And a lot of times they're not going to max out those policies. So I'm thinking, whoa, if they work for me for 20 years, because I don't have any plans to sell, are they going to be prepared at the end? And I think that, you know, introducing something like this could really help them. Well, there's a lot of nobility in it because it's like, what good does it do if in running your law firm or your business or my business that ultimately we all end up incredibly wealthy and able to create generational wealth, but the people who helped us get there, you know, we're just spending it as quick as it came in. And so on one hand, you could say, well, if I pay more than market wage, it's their responsibility. But on the flip side, I also think you got to know that employee is not a bad term and not everybody's going to be an owner or founder. And so sometimes you kind of got to be like a big brother or big sister and help people think through it. And the beauty of these plans are it can be set on a rolling vest. So you could say, because it is a non-ERISA world, hey, look, if you die during a seven-year vesting period, your family gets X. If you leave us during that period, you know, you get nothing and it's retained as a corporate asset. But at seven years, if you leave, whether we fire you, you retire, or you know you just quit, you get this much. But hey, by the way, at year 12, it's this much. At year 17, it's this much. And so in a good way, you can be equally or mutually yoked with a carrot out in front the whole time. And then to your exact point, even if they don't do the 3% because it's a safe harbor and you're just doing three and they don't do anything, you can you know base it on their total comp is a baseline with a kicker for the profitability of the firm. So there's incredible ways to structure it. And because it's not ERISA, you could pick a person. I mean, you could pick 10, you could pick it by class, et cetera, but it doesn't have to be like, well, Mark, this sounds really interesting. I got just the lady or just the gentleman of mine in my organization. You can do it for one person and do it for no one else and not run afoul of any kind of um, reporting requirements. Geez. I don't love to use this phrase, but I think of, uh, golden handcuffs, right? You want to have a top litigator, you want to retain them. They're close to that vesting period. They're like, oh, I'm going to stay, right? Because I want to retain this. Yes, they were. The ones that we have set up about once a year on a per plan basis, we'll get a call from somebody that'll say, hey, I know my annual statement's coming up soon, but how much is in the policy? And I'll tell them. And then I'll say, by the way, it's this much right now but you are 17 months away from this next deal. And when they don't call back, I know it means it's working because that means right. they went to the other firm or wherever they were looking. And we, we use like some R's in there. We want to recruit, retain, reward, and retire people as effectively as possible. But mm-hmm. there, it's got to be a dance, right? That's why I like non-ERISA structure once you've met their basic needs with a 401k is it's like, hey, look, you are a female stud or a male stud, whatever term you want to apply to it, we want you here long-term. And it's an incredibly good way to help people build in what feels like almost an equity component 
to someone that might not have the opportunity to buy equity. Because if you tell somebody at the end of the day, why do you really want equity if you're already making a ton of money? You want equity so someday when you sell your shares, you get a big pop. Well, what if you didn't have to worry about equity going out trying to find the money? Or if I give you equity, you have to pay taxes on it. And if this firm's worth a lot, it's going to be a big tax bill. What if I could just set up some kind of like phantom stock style program where at the end of this, you're going to get paid handsomely through wages, bonuses, commissions, et cetera. And at the end, there's going to be a big pot waiting for you as long as you come to the end with us. Super smart. There's so many applications of this. Like you said, it's like a tool. It can be used in a, in a variety of ways. So let's dive in there. So a couple questions. First, where do they begin? What do you look for when hiring someone to structure this policy correctly? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So hiring, a good place to start if you're ever approached by someone is FINRA.org. So F-I-N-R-A.org. They offer a tool for free called Broker Check, where you can type in somebody's last name and then their first name. It'll tell you how long they've been licensed with that company, how many other companies they've been licensed with, if they have any complaints or disclosures that have to be filed. So before you made any big decision with anybody, I would go to finra.org. That's a third-party watchdog group. That's number one. Number two, credentials are not always necessary, but they can't hurt. The American College, which is kind of the governing body for financial services, offers a CLU degree, which is a chartered life underwriter. So I wouldn't go as so far as to call it a master's degree, but it's definitely advanced study in life insurance products and concepts. So CLUs can be very good. CFPs, the board of standards of the CFP, that can be another thing. Again, there are people, Chris, who are wickedly smart and have helped a ton of clients and made a ton of money in this business that don't have a CLU or CFP. But all things being equal, if you were choosing between two people you liked and one of them had gone that route of advanced credentialization, I think that would be smart. I think the FINRA piece would be smart. And then I would always ask for some existing client introductions. It's my favorite thing when people say, oh, well, do you have anyone who's been doing this for a while I can talk to? I mean, I have got a bunch of them and I'm like, and I joke with them, but it's not a joke. I'm like, I really hope you call these people because number one, I'm not even going to tell them you're calling. And number two, if you do call them, we're definitely going to do business together because they're going to tell you what it's like on the other side. So FINRA's good, asking if they have two or three people. And then designations can be really helpful. Those are the three biggest things I'd be looking for in someone. And it's kind of like a CPA and other stuff. You don't have to find a financial peer, right? Because let's say, Chris, a guy's making a half a million or a million or $2 million in this business and you're making 10. I think we can both agree if a guy's making a half a million or a million or $2 million in this business and you're making 10, it doesn't mean you're 5X or however many multiples smarter. But you you do want to be careful just based on years of experience that this guy or girl's not three years into the business and getting ready to sell the biggest, you know, you never want to be somebody's biggest client. And so you want to make sure that they've got some experience. And then the fourth kind of secret sauce, in my opinion, is understanding their relationship and how they're contracted. So for instance, with Northwestern Mutual, we can sell insurance with any company and Northwestern Mutual. Other people can sell insurance with any company, but not Northwestern Mutual because they're still mutually exclusive. Just asking the question of, hey, out of curiosity, how many companies are you licensed with? That can be helpful because we can be licensed with anybody. I think I'm licensed with somewhere like around 30 because sometimes people get declined for health reasons. But start at FINRA.org. Credentialization can be important. Understanding how many companies they represent can be really important. And then asking them, hey, 
do you have two or three people? And they should have those two or three people on the tip of their tongue. If they say, yeah, I'll get you some people, then they're just going to go back and lead the witness. We don't want that, you know. But if they if they say, oh, yeah, sure, I, here's two people in mind that, you know, model your situation. I'll be happy to connect you all or I can share their contact. You can call them. I promise I won't call them type of deal. That Those would be the four things I'd look for. Overfunded whole life insurance may sound like an ideal investment. But Mark explains that setting up the right stage in your life and pairing it with term life insurance might be the best. Yeah, so step one, I would say, hey, look, I want you to help me calculate how much insurance you think I need, right? Like I always tell people amount first type second. Oftentimes for us, Chris, so that we don't muddy the water, we might sit down with someone and they say, hey, look, all in on debt, I owe 700000 so I'm writing that down. I have three kids, and I'd like to make sure if something happens to me, I could educate them. So I might take 25000 times three times four years of college and say, okay, well, that's 700 for debt, 300 for that. So now we're at a million find out how much you would need in a lump sum to kick off income for a surviving spouse. So made up example, now we're up to two and a half million. If that person doesn't already have two and a half million dollars of term insurance, I'm going to pause and say, hey, look, if you really want your permanent product to be there forever for death benefit legacy, if you really want your permanent product to be hyper efficient, you'd be better to buy your pure death benefit need and term life insurance. And here's why. When you're doing it to accumulate money, you can smash down the cost of commissions, you can smash down the amount of insurance, and you can walk right up to that modified endowment contract line. So I might tell a gentleman who doesn't have or lady, hey, let's get this two and a half million dollars in 20 year level term insurance. That is death benefit for the people you care about. It will expire, but 20 years from now, you're going to have more assets, less liabilities. Your kids are going to be grown, et cetera. Then let's look at some permanent death benefit because that's going to be a permission slip to spend in retirement. Because if you bounce your last check on the way out the door, if you're one of the lucky few that like you exhaust right before the last check gets to somebody and you know doesn't clear, you'll always have a guaranteed legacy. And if we have the death benefit out of the way with term, then we're not as focused on trying to get the death benefit to some specified amount. Then we can reverse engineer the permanent death benefit based on how much they might want to put in. Because two and a half million dollars a term for a healthy 40 year old might cost three grand a year, two and a half million of permanent, you know, might cost 40 grand a year. I'd rather you have two and a half million a term to cover death benefit because amount first is important and then say, okay, Mark, I've got 20 that I can put in there. Well, I can shrink down the amount of permanent death benefit to stuff more premiums inside of there because I've done the most important thing, which is handle the death benefit component first. So structure really depends on, do you have enough insurance in the first place, part one? If not, let's talk about handling the most important thing, the proper amount of insurance with term. Then let's talk about either what you're trying to get to by a certain age in your cash value or how much you feel like you could commit. And I always want clients to think of it in two bookends. What's the number on your permanent policy that even if it was a really bad year at the firm, you could meet that obligation? And then what's a number that if it was an average year, you feel like you could put in? And then if it was a really good year. So then I'm going to design a policy. If somebody says on an average year, I'm good for 12 
on an average year, I'm good for 20. On a great year, I'm good for 50. I'm going to try to reverse engineer since we already handled the death benefit with term. What's the least amount of insurance that could hold up to 50 grand when they're having a good year? Because that smashes down the commissions, that smashes down the reserving requirements that they have to hold as an insurance company to back that amount of insurance they just sold you based on your age, health, and gender. So that's why, you know, credentials, FINRA, these things can be important because most of the reason that people who are in either the second highest or the highest tax bracket don't own permanent life insurance is because they've never had it explained correctly to them with the correct company and the correct structure. If they are in a top tax bracket and they have it properly explained to them, properly structured from a really good company, it may be a small piece, but it'll end up being a piece of their overall wealth creation strategy. I couldn't agree more. But specifically for personal injury attorneys, just the TLDR, the summarized, why specifically could it be a good option for personal injury attorneys? And then what's next for for capitalist planning? So one of the, the main reason I think it could be a good option is you're almost always going to have some amount of cash on your balance sheet because you have liquidity needs. Because if you think about a rectangle and you drew two lines through it, you made three squares. You can close your eyes and think about this rectangle, two lines, you got three squares. Far right would be what we would call aggressive. That's what we would call your home run opportunity on the far right. Your home run opportunity, if you're listening to this podcast, is your law firm and the next case you're going to try. There is no insurance policy, individual equity, that will get you the rate of return that a successful client outcome or verdict will. So that's your best and highest use of a dollar. If you move from the right to the middle, you have aggressive. That's typically market-based money. Oftentimes, the guys and girls I'm dealing with in the plaintiff's world go, the only reason I have this is because we had to have a 401k for the employees. I don't even really believe in the market. I could just take that money, put it in a case and make more money. But my CPA says I'm an idiot if I don't do it. And I go, I agree with your CPA. So why don't you let us do your 401k too? And then the left bucket would be the safe money. And people just typically detest their safe money because it's low yielding and heavily taxed. The problem is, is that they never come off of the safe money. And so they end up holding somewhere between half a million and $5 million on their balance sheet for a 20 or 30 year legal career, not thinking of what the opportunity cost is. They'll look at a policy where they put a hundred grand in and only have 80 grand at the end of the first year if they cancel it and go 20 grand's missing, but they forget there's millions of dollars, at least hundreds of thousand dollars of phantom interest not earned by holding it in cash. So I think the bottom line is find someone. And I mean, selfishly, yeah, we would love for you to find us, right? But just find somebody who's a CFP or a CLU who represents, you know, enough companies that doesn't have a FINRA deal and just explain to them, I'm not ready to buy this product yet, but I do want to understand it deeper. I think that's the bottom line is if you start with someone who's qualified, if you view it as a permanent death benefit, if you understand that it's not meant to compete against equities because at its core, it's insurance with some really neat components and you find the right person to talk to about it, I think you'll really enjoy it. Awesome. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show and and sharing this with our audience. You are so welcome. And uh, I'd say what's next for the firm in closing is, I started as a 19-year-old kid. I still feel like a kid some days, but it's, you know, morphed into an organization that serves clients in 33 of the 50 states. And we have multiple certified financial planners. We have an in-house CFA We have a very robust wealth management practice in addition to insurance and financial planning. 
And um, here in the not so distant future, we're going to be bringing on a COO who was the COO of a small cap publicly traded bank. And uh, like a lot of our listeners, we're probably going to get into acquisition mode. We just believe there's a lot of people who have served their clients and this community here in Louisville and out in the state exceptionally well. Unfortunately, this used to be very much a Lone Ranger type business, so they do not have a succession plan. And it's not that they don't like their work, but if they had an exit where they knew the clients would be well cared for and they could be paid, they would most certainly do that versus, you know, the financial planning attorney model of die at their desk. And so I think what's next is we're so proud of our organic growth, but we really could help their clients benefit us and benefit them through some uh, pretty strategic acquisitions of, of people who at this point, I joke with them, I say, you got to be tired. I'm 39. I'm tired. Of, I mean, not of this business, but this business will grind on you. I'm like, you're 68, man. Like, I mean, does your wife like you? Because if not, I understand why you're still here. But if she does, like, in it, so I think that's what's next. I, I think that, uh, you know, getting a hold of, of someone who's got some mergers and acquisition, continuing this organic process on a national scale, and then where it makes sense for both the clients first and most importantly, the retiring advisor and our team, you know, giving everybody a safe landing zone. And hopefully someday, Chris, it gets so big, I turn it into an ESOP at 60 years old, I take a bow and we create a bunch of millionaires inside of this organization. And we create even more millionaires through clients and their kids and grandkids and generations I won't meet. Like that's what keeps me going when the grind really sucks. After today's conversation, I think we can all agree that wealth advice on the internet is not one size fits all. Generating and maintaining wealth for some of the nation's top earners requires expert advice. I'd like to thank Mark Cool from Capitalist for sharing his story with us, and I hope you gained some valuable insights from the conversation. You've been listening to Personal Injury Mastermind. I'm Chris Dreyer. If you like this episode, leave us a review. We love to hear from our listeners. I'll catch you on next week's PIM with another incredible guest and all the strategies you need to master personal injury marketing. The conversation you just heard is not intended to be recommendations for specific investment behavior and is intended for informational and educational purposes only. This is not a research report or investment advice and not to be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Investors are advised that past investment performance is not a guarantee of future price performance. Before making any investment, you should carefully seek independent legal, tax, and regulatory advice.